0: Welcome to the Death Studies podcast, a podcast dedicated to the breadth and diversity of voices in and around the academic field of death studies.
1: With your hosts, Dr. Renske Visser and Dr. Bethann Michael Fox. Let's get started.
0: Hello, Renske, how are you doing today?
1: I'm very warm today, Beth. How are you?
0: What? You're saying it's not (laughs) snowing in Finland? It's
1: twenty. 8 still at the moment and my time of recording is 7 p.m. So yesterday it was 32 and it's going to be really warm for the next 10 days. 32 what? Degrees Celsius. Okay. So yeah, for people who think climate change is not a thing, it brings Finland very warm summers suddenly and also very cold winters. But this is not normal for Finland. And I'm not built for this kind of weather. I think 25 degrees is like my top for nice weather. I'm, I like a bit of cool breeze, layers, like layers and stuff. So this for me is pure
0: agony. <laughs> yeah, I feel you. I'm the same. Well, weather aside, we've got... A very big thank you to all of our wonderful listeners and supporters who, in the last month, since our last episode, we have launched our coffee page. I say that very cautiously because we had a big debate about how to say it. I thought it was Kofi, like Kofi and Nan, but consensus says it's coffee. But it's spelled K O F I, isn't it? Yeah. Well,
1: it could be Kofi because that means Friday. Kofi means born on a Friday in Tweet, a language spoken in Ghana. But it would be, because I thought it was like a wordplay, like coffee, coffee, just having coffee spelled in a weird way. But it could also just mean Friday.
0: Maybe. I think it makes more sense that it's coffee. Mm. And I'm just saying it wrong. I think let's go with that. So we have our own (laughs) coffee page where people can (laughs) donate a little bit of money, three pounds or anything they can afford one off or a bit more regularly if they want to. Or buy merchandise. We currently have sweaters. They're nearly out of stock. They are flying off the shelves. And we also have badges. And soon to be coming, we've got some postcards. But we might pop them up on the website at some point too. Yeah, we're just so grateful. Thank you so much to those of you who've, who've made a donation and or bought some merchandise we really appreciate it it's so wonderful seeing pictures coming in of people wearing their sweaters and their badges and nice things out there and we're really really just so thankful it's helping us to keep going and it's really helping us to cover our costs because it is a it's a little bit expensive running a podcast sometimes and it's just really making a big difference to us so please know you're very much appreciated and if anyone does want to uh, help us out that way then please do check out our coffee page. There's a link to it on our website or via our Twitter.
1: I also just add my massive, massive thanks to everyone who has sent us some money and bought some of our sweaters. But also if you happen to be at Death in York, Death and Culture in York this September, we will be bringing some of our merchandise. And if you want to reserve your sweater and want to make sure that your size will be there and the colour of your liking, please drop us a message and we'll make sure we've got the right of mind of stock.
0: Yeah, that's true, actually. We've got a couple of people who've already emailed us with their size and colour that we don't have in stock. So we'll make a little list. If we've got enough people, then we'll be able to do another print run. But yeah, so we're back today with another episode a very exciting episode today and one coming from an independent researcher which we're really excited to include because it's such an important thing to have represented I think it's something that many of us can be for a certain period and it's it's great to have that opportunity to talk to someone who is flourishing in and doing so well within that role. Absolutely and also some
1: people who might be listening to the podcast might not realize that uh, Dr Helen Frisbee actually is an independent researcher because she also works full-time at the U University, but in a slightly different role, which we'll talk about in the episode as well. But I think the way she presents herself, she's quite open about it, but I think with how successful she is, people sometimes forget that she also has a full-time job alongside her academic work. So without further ado, Dr. Helen Frisby obtained her PhD on Victorian funeral customs from the University of Leeds in 2009. Helen is a visiting research fellow at the Center for Death and Society at the University of Bath. She's secretary of the Association for the Study of Death and Society, ASDS, and a council member of the Folklore Society. She continues to research, publish, and speak on the history and folklore of death, dying, and bereavement, including appearances on the History Channel and BBC Radio. Helen's book, Traditions of Death and Burial, was published in 2019. Other recent research with the University of Bristol investigates the informal occupational culture of frontline cemetery staff. Helen is also a research development manager at UWE with a particular expertise in academic writing, qualitative research methods, and postgraduate research well-being.
0: We hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome, Helen, to the podcast. It's brilliant to have you on here. Can we start, please, by just asking you a bit about your academic background and the research methodologies that, that you use? If you could just tell us a bit about yourself, please.
2: OK, well, hi, Beth and Renske and, and hello, everybody. It's, it's lovely to be here and thank you so much for inviting me. I, although I, I started out as a theologian and then fairly quickly segued in, into social history, where I've, I've been ever since. So um, as a historian, I, mean, I, I mainly use documentary analysis. And uh, during during the course of my my PhD, I kind I kind of bumped into historic antiquarian sources in a way that I, d- I don't I'm not sure PhD students get the chance to do much today because this was this was kind of just about back in the days when you could still register with a very vague idea that something looked kind of interesting. So in my case, that Victorian funerals looked interesting and. I felt there was more to be said about them than had been to date. So anyway, I, I kind of bumped into these sources and, and I felt that they did tell quite a different story to the, the the prevailing one. They're quite interesting to work with because obviously they're constructed and mediated through different voices. So there's a lot of reading against the grain, trying to fill in the gaps, having to be quite honest and reflective about the bits that we just can't go anymore. I, I guess in terms of my, my sort of epistemic positioning I probably call myself a critical realist so I feel that there is to some extent a reality out there that we can reach and grasp but also from some extent that you know we as researchers are situated in, in the topic as well and I think particularly with a topic like death and dying and bereavement that's that's always really of important to to remember I have to say that they are very interesting sources that they're, they're quite bitty and fragmented and they're very full of middle class Victorian prejudices and some views on you know sort of empire and colonialism that wouldn't be at all acceptable today, but you know these 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 are products of their time, and you you have to make the decision that you're going to work with them as they are really. I always think doing histories, is a bit like, um, it's a bit like having a jigsaw, except you haven't got the guide on the box, and some of the pieces are missing, and some of them are broken, and some of them are obscure, and some of them are written in language from about 300 years ago. And, and you have to, to make some sort of sense of it all and weave some kind of coherent narrative. and um, And I actually think that's a really profoundly analytical act. Uh, Someone, someone once said to me, oh, "Oh, oh, you're a historian. You just narrate what happened." And I, and I, I was, re- I was really quite passionate about that because, uh, because actually, I, you know, I think we're really sort of putting our own stamp and shape on the past, whether we like it or not. It can feel quite a responsibility as well because these are people who've been dead for decades and, in some cases, centuries, and 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 you might be their only voice. That feels like quite a responsibility to get that some variety of right as well.
0: Oh, we're really interested in these uh, Victorian funerals. Could you tell us a bit about what the sort of Victorian customs and beliefs about funerals were or, or what some of the sort of ideas you were working with there were?
2: Of course, I suppose if you think of it like a ritual journey, like a sort of a, so there's the there's the moment of death and then there's the, the process of dying. So socially and emotionally and, and spiritually. And it's like how people got the deceased where they needed to go and the bereaved where they needed to be if you like. And some of the ways that people did that ritually are still quite familiar to us nowadays. So the Victorians were very keen on their funeral teas. We'd certainly recognise that one, I think. But there were also some things that would seem quite strange and alien to us. Um, So there was a whole raft, for example, of death portents and beliefs about magically predicting and Preventing death. I wrote a whole paper just on those, so we could spend all evening talking about those. But but I won't. And then um, there's still quite a, a raft of deathbed customs as well. So things like drawing the pillow, because there was a belief that the presence of wild uh, bird feathers prevented a, a person dying easily. Covering reflective surfaces, stopping the clock, putting the fire out in the room. The belief that people should be accompanied during that process of dying is one again i think we're probably all quite, quite familiar with still nowadays and then there were post-mortem customs like washing and shrouding the body and um, things like um, sort of lighting candles placing a saucer of salt on the body again some of these are familiar some are less so some people left food and drink out because there was a belief that This is a sort of what anthropologists would call a liminal period where the characteristics of both life and death are present. And some people even believe that the dead could move around during this time while they were laid out at home. This is is long before things like the chapel of rest or arterial embalming became mainstream if you want to read about those then Brian Parsons book is is the one to read. And then there's waking nowadays we think about waking in relations after the funeral but actually that that's a a word that shifted over the years so there was um, this sort of gathering of friends neighbours relations to eat and drink and tell stories and generally sort of rehearse their kind of memories of the deceased and face up to the kind of what's what's happened and it's It's only really with the advent of the Chapel of West in the 1930s that that custom really goes. And I think this is an important reminder, actually, about the very important distinction between history and nostalgia. Because when changes happen, they do for a reason. It is very easy to be nostalgic and say, oh, we've lost all these wonderful old customs and the, the, the good old days and all that. But actually, you can also think of those customs as being quite intrusive, quite financially burdensome. You know, having all the neighbours round to have a poke around your house at the time when you're having probably the worst time of your life. So you can understand why people wanted the privacy and control that the Chapel of Rest gave them. I mean, there's a whole raft of other customs as well around um, sort of telling the bees that somebody had died. And then in terms of processional customs, um, processing to the funeral, that was all done quite quite ritualistically i think we're going to talk a little in a little bit more detail about sin eating later on so I'll, I'll just mention that for now then of course there's the the funeral itself and then there's a whole raft of after funeral customs as well to do with mourning wear all that sort of thing really so it's, it's it's a whole suite of customs
1: could i as a non-british person i've heard this phrase quite a lot but i'm not fully sure what the chapel of rest is could you tell
2: a bit more about that OK, so that's what Americans call the funeral home or the funeral parlour. So that's usually part of the undertaker's premises where people go to to view the person and they're all laid out in the coffin. But prior to the 1930s in this country, that would all normally have taken place at home. And again, that would have had, that would have had upsides and downsides. Some very obvious downsides in terms of what we might call the gross materiality of, of dead bodies in often small and, and cramped living conditions. But also, you know, sort of a chance for people to really face up to the fact of what's happened and for the, the dead person to begin that process of journeying from being a living person to being an ancestor. A lot of these customs I'm describing sound quite strange, but then they, they've they also got that underpinning logic as well. and it, And it's about this idea that you can and should do stuff to help the dead onto where they need to go which doesn't doesn't sit that comfortably with the sort of particular brand of Calvinist Protestantism which has tended to prevail in this country. So there's a sort of interesting undertone there of something else going on under that kind of modernist narrative of that period. There's something older that has been there for a long time.
0: Yeah, some of the stuff you were talking about in your paper on Victorian death customs are about superstitions, perhaps about birds and death, like you said already, the thing about the pillows which I guess would have had feathers in them, but some stuff about like cuckoos and owls and things. And I mean, maybe I shouldn't use this word, but perhaps like quite pagan beliefs about nature and the transition from
2: life to death. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, the the, the word pagans, a really interesting one, and it's one I hear a lot. I think Ronald Hutton's done some really interesting work around this about, um, you know, what what do we mean by pagan? What people often mean by non-pagan, well, they mean mean non-Christian, but I think they also mean non-Protestant Christian as well. And I think a lot of the kind of beliefs that we're talking about here, they have that logic that I think sits very comfortably with a brand of pre-reformation Christianity and the whole kind of apparatus of purgatory. And that idea that, that sort of very almost quite quite comforting framework that the, the the stuff that you can and should do to help the dead, which all gets stripped away at the Reformation, and, but with nothing to particularly replace it other than a reliance on the grace of God which what I think we see around that period is a transposition of a lot of these rituals into the domestic sphere in the form of folklore and they're then picked up by antiquarian commentators that way. That word pagan's a bit tricky because it it comes with quite a lot of baggage but I haven't yet found a good one word summary of of the several minutes lecture that I've just given you on the Reformation. (laughs) I know that's great, thank you.
0: Now, you've written a book as well about traditions of death and burial, and you stated that that's a book you've always wanted to write. So could you tell us about your book, please? And we'll, of course, be putting links to, to your book and to these other people you've mentioned in the show notes so that people can
2: go and track them down and do a bit more reading if they like. For a number of years after my PhD, I, I tried to do what a lot of people do after their PhD, which is turn it into a book, and this did not go very well. In fact, I still haven't written it. And I think I got to a place where I realised that the reason I hadn't written it was because I didn't fundamentally want to write it. And I didn't want to write just yet another academic history that was going to sit on the shelf somewhere and only be read by, you know, maybe a dozen people. Then the end of 2018, I think it was, the end end of 2018, I got an email. And, uh, you know, we all all get academic spam, don't we, saying, you know, will, will you review this? article sort of thing and usually you say no and delete and block it and i nearly did with this one and i'm so glad i didn't because it turned out to be real and it turned out to be um one of the editors from bloomsbury who published a shire series of popular histories so you sort of you know you find you find them in stately homes and in a gift shop and that sort of thing so it's a series that's got a fantastic outreach while still having a scholarly underpinning and it's always the book i've always really really wanted to write and funnily enough i was able to write that book really quickly. Well, having some sort of some health issues and buying a house and having a big promotion at work, so I must have really wanted to write that one. That's very inspiring, isn't it? Absolutely, and it's it's also a lovely book. What I like
1: about your book, it's kind of pocket size, but filled with so much information and lovely pictures
2: so it's a bit different than a lot of the other ones that are out there I'm really really glad that you liked it Um, it was it was an absolute joy to write I have to say there were uh, I I ate a lot of toasted bagels during that period and and even now when I eat a toasted bagel it takes me back to that very crazy but very fun period in my life
1: And in the book, you state that you want to explore how ordinary English people since the Middle Ages onwards have faced up to the inevitable, what we might be able to learn from the past about death and dying. Can you tell us some of those lessons that people today might learn from the past about death and dying?
2: Well, I think first and foremost, it is something we're all going to have to face up to one way or another, And secondly, that there are Lots of different ways to do that. I really believe very, very passionately, and this comes not just from academic study, but from ha- having attended some really quite, you know, awful funerals that kind of epitomise that sort of late twentieth, early first twenty 20th, 21st century production line funeral that's that's sadly so typical in this country. And um, you know, I really want to make funerals better. I want, I, I want, them, I want them to be good funerals in the sense that they. Acknowledge the reality of what's happened. They they have the sad moment, and you know then we sort of start to journey out the other side and and reconfigure on the the other side of it, sort of thing. So really, what I wanted to suggest in the book that actually, if we're if we're looking for ideas about how to date better and again, you know, being careful of that distinction between history and nostalgia, that I referred to earlier, but you know, the past is full of good ideas about about how we might do death and dying perhaps a bit better. So I hope people, you know, people might look at it and, and think, well, I really want a lovely medieval style velvet pole and, and, and tapers. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe not.
0: Yeah, the pictures are great. We we were browsing through it because Francesca and I are both in the same place today. We're together recording this in the same room. And we were looking at your book the other day and sort of browsing through the pictures and going, oh, that's not, oh, isn't that interesting? And my daughter came and had a little look as well. So I think it is just a really lovely whilst you know being a really interesting and thought-provoking book textually it's also just a really interesting piece to look at isn't it and, and sort of engage with
2: the picture sourcing was I and mean, it was it was again one of the reasons I wanted to write the book it was also a massive learning curve in terms of collating everything I did have a budget actually but it um I had to be quite creative with how I used that to get everything in that I needed and wanted to get in so, some of the images in there are my own photographs. My parents, who who live in Leeds, got got dispatched to York to photograph medieval war brasses, and, and and apparently that one was an absolute nightmare with the lighting, as was the photo in the 18th century chapter of the Maiden's Garland, with all the lights and the reflections. And I think I think they took about 80 shots to get that one. And so I I really really couldn't have done the book, you know, w- without my husband, friends, colleagues, family. It really was quite a, quite, quite a joint effort in the end.
1: And you note that a lot of modern funeral customs are twists on things that happened in the past and on some of the older customs. So could you tell us some of those twists?
2: Sure. Well, we, we talked uh, a bit earlier about death portents and about this idea that it's possible to, to magically kind of manage and control death and when and how it occurs. So I mean a good example of that. One that's one that's still with us in a vestigial form actually is the um the the one about nowadays we still have this idea that it's it's a good thing somehow if a baby cries at the moment it's christened. And nowadays we talk about it in terms of good luck. But if you go back a century or more, the reason it was thought to be a good thing is because that was the devil leaving the baby so it wouldn't die. And and you can just imagine, can't you? You know, people stood around the font, and a, a little strategic pinch being given at the, the appropriate moment, so that the the mother die Superstition is a good example of that as well, actually, because um, um, obviously with different patterns of morbidity, many Victorian children would sadly have, you know, lost a parent or maybe even two fairly early on in life. There was a superstition in, in many parts of the country that if you plucked um, cow parsley, uh, that would cause your mother to die. It was also called stepmother's blessing as well for the for same reason. You know, ch- children get straight to the point; they really do. So there's this idea that we can kind of by either doing certain things or refraining from doing certain things, we can control what happens. And I think a little bit of that lingers. For example, in nowadays, you can get apps on your phone that you put your details in, and they tell they purport to give you a, a date of death. Now, I mean, heaven knows whether or not there's absolutely work. But I just think it's a really example of the fact we we, we like to feel we have some control over the uncontrollable. It's very much, to my mind, it's the same thinking. It's just in slightly different technological clothes. What I wanted to ask, in preparation of this
1: book and also what you mentioned at the start, where you say there's a responsibility of being a social historian and the information that you have and the information that you perhaps have not... How do you kind of prove that they, those were things that, are actually, that were actually being done by people? And to what extent is your interpretation of what people were doing
2: in the past? That's a really, really good question. And I think it comes back to, again, being very clear about you know, what, what is your epistemic positioning in all of this. I think where I've got to with it is that, and I think this is where history does, unless you are doing oral history, with living subjects this is where history and the social sciences differ quite significantly because the the big difference of course is that you can't talk to your subjects you can't go back and check with them you have to be very honest about where the gaps are and that you're probably not ever going to be able to fill them. that some stuff is just lost and and that's that i think also it is very difficult to access through historical sources the lived specific experience of individuals So. I would be very wary of giving this when I when I talk about these customs cumulatively it's very easy to sort of get the impression that everybody was doing all this stuff all the time and I very much doubt they were what I think we've got is a bit is a bit like a rule book of what people were supposed to do and think and feel and what some people probably did some of the time enough that it was fairly common and recognized but that doesn't so, so we, can, we can interpret it on that level, I think, but I'm not sure I go too much further than that. And if you are dealing with the experiences of the sort of the leisured and literate social elites, you've got a slightly better chance because quite often there, you know, there will be first-hand letters, diaries, but all the sort of stuff that most historians really like to work with for that reason. So when you are sort of dealing with people who did not have the time or the skills or the resources to leave those kind of records, then you have to be quite clear about how far you can go. And I think that's probably about how far you can go in this case. That's so interesting.
1: It probably leads on nicely to the next question, which you've mentioned at the start, and that is your interest in sin eaters. And could you tell us a bit about what
2: sin eaters are and why you are so interested in them? Okay, well, it's very interesting, Rose, that you use the word are rather than was. We, we will come back to that, so... I was doing a talk last week, actually, about, about sin eating last week, and um, one of the things I said to the group was that the reason I'm so interested in sinitas is because they are perfect folklore. For, for reasons I'm going to explain in a moment. First of all, I'll explain what we think they were and what we think they did, which was that um, this seems to have been a ritual. It's first attested in this country in around 1640, and the last known sun died in 1906. Um, so it's quite a specific period of time and again I think there are reasons for that that we kind of went round earlier and they would, uh, when somebody died they would be laid out usually but not always before processing to the funeral some bread, salt, wine accounts vary would be placed on, either placed on the corpse or they would be handed over by a relative or occasionally the sin eater might have supplied their own some of the sources suggest there's quite a lot of variation and they would eat them and with them it was sort of, and this, is, this is absolutely classic Fraserian contagious magic going on here. They were thought to ingest the sins of the deceased with with those items. And then the deceased can kind of go on happily to whatever afterlife they're going on. And the, the city was quite, seems to have been quite a marginal figure. They would live on the edge of the town or the village and they would just be called in to do this particular job. But yeah, there's a huge amount of variation and gaps and contradictions in the sources. And, When you start reading the sources really closely, what you realise is there's also an awful lot of antiquarian hot air going on in there as well. So there's a lot of Victorian antiquarians recapitulating 17th century sources as if they were still current. So you've got to be really careful about that. And that, again, comes back to reading your sources very carefully. So that was as far as I'd got with it. And then, and again, this this just shows the value of talking to the people in your life about your research. I I was bemoaning this to my husband and say, I really can't get any further. It's so frustrating. I don't know where to go next. But there are loads of books and films about Sin And this took my research on a completely different kind of path because, as I said, Sin perfect folklore because we know just enough about them to have a, have a kind of an outline. But there are so many gaps and contradictions where we can kind of interpolate ourselves and our own fears and anxieties and concerns and hopes and dreams about modern life off I went down a path of watching lots of, occasionally slightly trashy, films about cinema. So I had some great great Saturday popcorn nights. Of course, the the trouble is you keep on finding more and more. So I'm probably going to to write a book about that as well. And it's really interesting to see which bits bits of the sources these creative producers pick up, which they change, the gaps, you know, how, 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 how they fill the gaps, how they play around and how they say things about, you know, what it's like to exist in current times and the kind of the balance between sort of agency and structure, the fact that the internet has given us access to unprecedented knowledge, but also, you know, some of that knowledge is quite dark and quite burdensome. So you know, what is it to know? That is why I think you can also refer to eaters in the present tense as well.
1: And you say there's a lot of modern sources on eaters in films and books, and how are they being portrayed in those kinds of sources?
2: Well, there's, there's a real range. On the question of structure and agency, some of those fictional sin eaters find meaning and purpose and agency outside the structures of church and family and work and so on. But some of them have a narrative route back into those and perhaps a more conventional kind of ending and they find their way out of sin eating one way or another. But some of them actually find empowerment in agency. Even if the flip side of that is sometimes this terrible loneliness and sort of having to give up, you know, having to give up friendship and love and support and all those things. And, and, and I think there's definitely a sort of a, a line of thought there about, you know, where we all draw our own balances between those things. Because structures like, you know, church and family and work can be comforting and supportive, but they can also be constraining in a society that very much privileges individual self-expression. And I think Sin Eaters are a great way to explore those kind of questions.
1: And do you have a favourite
2: film or book that portrays Sin Eaters? Oh, that's a really hard one. I think it's going to be, it's either The Sin eater or The Order. It was released under two separate titles. And so Alex Bernier, who's played by the late Heath Ledger, he, he goes on a real journey. He's one of the Sin Eaters that finds meaning in being a Sinita and being outside the structures. And that gives him to freedom to do and to be things that he otherwise wouldn't be able to be. And there's a great scene at the end where you find out that there are some jobs that even Sinita's refuse. I said some of these films were, you know, sort of Saturday night popcorn. And so, so that there's a subplot in this film where we have what is revealed to be the Black Pope who's planning to rise up from the underworld and, and take over the, the Vatican. He's part. Our hero is part of the sort of stopping him. And at the end, he forces him to eat his own sins. And there's this fantastic scene where the guy, the, sort of the camera pounds down as the guy's face disintegrates and there's this you know, ha- echoing kind of howl. And then you see the character walking away saying, I've forsaken life and love to, to kind of live this life. You know, I am the Sunita. That's how it ends. It's really powerful. Well, I will definitely check that one out. And we'll also put a link
1: in the show notes for this film, which I'm sure many people will want to go and watch. And we are also very interested in, because you talk about Sin Eaters, Victorian funerals, with your history hat on. But we know you also work at the University of Western England as a research development manager. So could you tell us a bit about both roles?
2: I would love to tell you one, and I suppose being a historian one is always very conscious of this, that you you talk about the past and you build a narrative and it, I would love to tell you this was all the result of a twenty year career plan and it really wasn't. It totally wasn't. Planned opportunism at best. Yeah, I mean I mean like like many postgraduate researchers, I, I guess I just assumed I would go into an academic job. I graduated in two thousand and nine, which was is actually the worst job market imaginable. <laughs> for academic historians there were there were no jobs so you know I had to I had to do something and so I'd actually been working throughout my PhD I'd already been working at a university in, in a range of administrative roles so I worked in timetabling I worked in the academic registry met my husband along the way I ended up working in the research degrees office I spent a few years bucketing around the academic conference circuit thinking what on earth to do with myself and um I think I eventually got to a point I had to draw a line under the whole job process. That was quite difficult. I'll be very honest, that, that was that was really hard. But it did very much feed into the way I did my job at the time as a program PGR programs officer because I was quite often going beyond the bounds of that role to sort of support and help PGRs who were going through the kind of journeys I'd been going through. Eventually, this fantastic job of research and development manager, which I'd wanted for ages. Um, came up and and I got it. I guess the job's kind of about creating spaces. It's not it's not about teaching or lecturing, it's about creating spaces, many for PTRs, although I do also work with postdoctoral staff. For them to, you know, sort of grow and develop as academics and researchers and people and to find their best way through that journey, what whatever it is. So it's a great job it's very, very varied. So I'm programme manager, counsellor, researcher, mopper up of spilled coffee, shifter of furniture, often all at the same time. It's a great role. And uh, even when I am in seemingly interminable meetings, arguing about budgets and job descriptions, you know, I sort of keep in, keep in mind why I'm doing this. And and what's really, really wonderful, um, quite often when the PTRs graduate, I, I get emails and cards and, and they're kind enough to say that, that I've helped them along the way. And, and that's, that's just wonderful. That's why I do the job. But it's been, it's been a great way, I guess, of combining the kind of the administrative, but also the, the academic background as well. Because in a lot of cases, I have been there and I have got the T-shirt and still smiling some of the time.
1: <laughs> oh, it sounds like a very fulfilling role to have then. In-
2: yeah, it, it it is. It's not something I ever imagined doing, as I say. I'd love to tell you it was part of a 20-year career plan, but it really wasn't. And in fact, I don't think this job probably even existed in quite this form when, when I was starting out. But yeah, it's been a great way to, to experience many things. Seen so many wonderful PGRs along the way, in all sorts of subject areas, actually.
1: And alongside that, you are remaining your own research career because you are an independent researcher. Could you tell us some of the challenges uh, that brings of being an independent researcher?
2: Well, there are practical challenges, times an obvious one. When I first took the job at the, my first job at the university, I, I was quite keen to work at the university because I figured it would give me a university email address and access to the library and, you know, just like a general kind of academic community. There to to sort of keep me in the swim of it. Yeah, time is. I have I have a full time job. It, it's quite busy and demanding. Luckily, my managers are very understanding that occasionally I need to go off and do academic stuff, and that I'm going to be a bit of a pain in the bum for a few days after I come back because I'm going to be in academic mode. <laughs> but I will soon. I will soon settle down again. It will be fine. so certainly. I mean, having supportive managers is is absolutely critical. Time's a challenge, and I have to be quite. Strategic about what I do and why I do it. So, um, sort of accepting speaking engagements, I'm always very clear about. And I, you know, I do get a lot of requests for talks. I'm always sort of quite clear about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Some new collaborations. I have, I have a lot of requests to work with people. I do have to be quite picky about who I, you know, what I take on because, obviously, I've got very limited time. I think the other challenge is a bit more existential emotional it can be a bit lonely and I think not so much nowadays actually things are changing but I think certainly when I started out it was sometimes difficult to get career academics to take one seriously I think because of the way the academic job market is nowadays a lot more people are following this route and I think it's becoming more of a normal thing to do I would certainly say to anyone who who is considering stepping out of academia that actually you can be quite and particularly in the humanities and social sciences you can actually find quite creative ways to to keep at least one foot in and you get to cherry pick all the best bits as well which is great
1: which leads nicely on to the next question what are some of the perks of
2: being independent well yeah being able to cherry pick what you do and who with and when um i've been really lucky for the last Eight years now, I've had a great collaboration with Dr. Stuart Pryor at the University of Bristol. And together we've done quite a lot of work exploring the informal occupational culture of frontline cemetery workers or in normal language grave digging. They haven't let me anywhere near the business end of a shovel yet. Yet, I live in Hope, but I, I have I have got to talk to, to the guys who do that. And that's been a very enriching and, and rewarding experience. It has given me me the opportunity to try new research methods as well, so now i I know do interviews oral history as well as archival work, so yeah again, I think it's just about you know picking the right people to work with. Stuart's always been great and he's been very understanding of the fact that you know I work in certain ways because of my situation, and it has been fine we've, we've had a great time so yeah i i i would I would certainly say you know don't discount it, just be a bit strategic about what you do who with and try and get that all-important ac.uk email address as well by, by whatever means you can. Yeah, do you think that is still something very important to have? I think it is, yes. I said earlier that we're in a happier position than we were when I started out on, on, on this route over a decade ago, but I do think there is a little way to go, and I think certainly the ac.uk email address can, can open doors still so yes now i have three ac.uk my addresses actually i'm, I'm also a as well as my, my ue hat i'm also a, a visiting research fellow at the center for Deaf and society and i'm also still an honorary research associate at, at bristol as well
1: so now you're just collecting them all mm, yeah collecting titles as i go along <laughs> and just because i'm very curious as a person can you tell us a bit more about
2: your grave digging project because that sounds
1: fascinating as well
2: yeah, sure. Well, um, like all the best projects, this one began over Wine and Nibbles. So I'm, I'm, now, I'm now convinced all the best projects become over Wine and Nibbles. And it was actually a networking event through the Centre for Death and Society about about eight years ago. Yeah, Stuart and I got talking and, and he was looking for somebody to help out with particular aspects of this research idea that he had. He's a great figure turned archaeologist. So he would got this idea in mind that he wanted to investigate. And he was looking for someone who would be familiar with oral history, folklore, all that sort of thing. So we got chatting and we were very lucky to get, to get a bit of funding, which covered, covered our interview costs and transcriptions. So that was a biggie. I did a, an oral history course. We learned uh, how to use in Vivo. Did our interviews, which was great. It's, it's a very closed occupational community. so. We were very, very fortunate to get the access we did. We did, we did some interviews over the course, course of a week. Uh, we also interviewed some of the uh, office staff and we interviewed the first line manager as well. So we got a really good picture. And I also spent some time in the archives. The thing is, when you put funding applications in, you say that you're going to do X y, and Z, but, but you never know, do you? You never quite know. There's always that leap of faith moment. Oh, it was one, it was one of those amazing moments that you just live for as a historian, because I went into the archive and I hit gold first time uh, in the in the form of, well, primarily of burial board minute books, but sort of other kind of miscellaneous and ephemera that had happened to survive and, and come down. We built up a really good picture, not, not just of present day grave digging practice, but also sort of historically as well. We were able to make links between the two, actually, because our interviewees talked very enthusiastically about how their predecessors had used explosives to uh, break hard ground when they were digging. And we were actually able to prove that by by going back into the particular minute books and looking at equipment orders and looking at correspondence from local residents complaining about the noise and the bangs. And uh, one chap who was back in the 1920s, I think, he lived next to a local cemetery was quite clearly trying to get some money out of the corporation <laughs> by claiming that the the were um were, were damaging his property and the and it's all it's all in very sort of you know, coded um minute book kind of language um so it's very interesting to go back and and make those connections. So was the soil that hard that they needed to blow it up? Oh yeah, yeah. There was one that, one um cemetery in our in our case study sample so there's there's about a decade in the past 20s 20s or 30s the corporation spends a decade negotiating with a neighboring landowner to get this piece of land to expand the cemetery and they get the land and they buy it and they enclose it and then they they start digging and they get about three foot down and they hit solid bedrock this is very embarrassing when you have spent a decade and paid a lot of money to acquire this land. What they used to do was they used to um, they they'd get a pickaxe and they'd, they'd sort of crack the rock and then they'd put charges in those cracks and set them off. But, I mean, it, at this particular ground, even that wasn't working. And then somebody had this really bright idea, let's borrow some jackhammers from the guys who work on the roads. So they did that and it worked really well and that was the first example that we found of the sort of mechanisation of grave digging. It has to be said they went through quite a lot of drill bits. And again, local residents complaining about the noise from the drills and the generators. And uh, yes, again, great loops of correspondence there.
1: Has any of this been published yet? Or is it a work in progress?
2: It's a work in progress at the moment. We have been working on this a long time. And that is because um, about halfway through our our project, Stuart was, was taken very seriously ill. Uh, at one point, we didn't actually know that he was going to survive. Everything's taken a little bit longer than, than we originally hoped, but we are still very much on course till we hope, publish soon. Yeah, it's just been great that we've got this far, really.
1: Well, it sounds absolutely fascinating. And I have one final question for you, and then we'll let you go. But in an ideal world where there's no limits on resources or anything, what kind of projects and um, topics would you like to research if there were no limitations? Oh, there were no limits.
2: I'd like to take the grave digging study. And I'd like to, because at the moment we've done one burial authority. So I would like to interview grave diggers in a whole range of different types of burial authority, so urban and rural, and different types of, of burial grounds, so cemeteries and churchyards and I'd like to do that all over the british isles and even beyond. There's there's no limit once you start. <laughs> and I think it would be wonderful to find you know both the commonalities but also the maybe some regional national differences as well. That would be my dream project right now.
1: So for anyone listening with a little bit of spare cash email Helen and she can research her grave diggers. <laughs> <laughs> Helen, thank you so much for being
2: with us tonight and for sharing all your work with us. Oh, it's it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. And I hope that people listening find some useful stuff in there.
1: So as always, I thought that was an excellent episode. And I always love hearing about people from different disciplines. And one of the key phrases that stood out for me was how she was talking about history versus nostalgia. There are different feelings and emotions in how we often impose a set of, or feelings of nostalgia on history, whereas what actually happened in real time was probably not as good as people now look back on it. So I thought that the notion, we have both history and nostalgia, but then at the same time, she also said, the past is full of good ideas. So some of the funeral costumes she was talking about there are nice things that sometimes we continue to do or nice things that we could perhaps go back to and pick up again.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've just said absolutely now. I think i it's <laughs> <laughs> your favorite word. Um history is always a discipline with so many interesting stories. I have a lot of students who opt for like the history pathway in the subjects and, and areas that I teach. And students are really engaged with and excited by the stories. But I think it can take a while to sort of sometimes realise how incredibly political history is and how important the narrative that's woven with that is. And I love Twitter for that, because you go on Twitter and you just see these incredibly, at times really difficult kind of calling outs of, of what people are saying and the narrative that they're putting across about history or whether that's national history or a specific event that took place. But it's really interesting to think about it in terms of, of death studies and that there there might be these quite complicated and contradictory and difficult histories of how things are thought of. But yeah, my, my favourite's got to be, like you said, the... Uh, History is full of good ideas.
1: Yeah, but she was also saying that because we asked her how common were some of the the things that are depicted in paintings or texts from that time. She thought it's more of a rule book of what people were supposed to do versus it's not really known how many people were actually doing some of the things that are still known today. And yes, a lot of these things also cost a lot of money. So it's probably she didn't really go into that that much. But a lot of these things are probably much more for the elites and not for the everyday men.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. I'm really into like self-help books from the past and like Victorian self-help books or any of the sort of earlier self-help style stuff. And again, it's like, it's not necessarily saying people did this, but it tells you something about a culture and a space and a time that that what's considered proper or good or or what you might need to work on in yourself. Very telling. Absolutely. I'm now just using my own catchphrase.
1: Can it be my catchphrase if it's just one word? We can and we can extend our merch line to include <laughs> absolutely <laughs> and one of her other quotes I really liked and I wrote this down was when she was talking about sin eaters and she said sin eaters are perfect folklore we know just enough about them she was talking about how again we there there was this figure called the sin eater but because there's just enough gaps we can fill them in with a lot of our own ideas or perhaps put contemporary notions on a historic figure and I really loved her talking about all the popular culture depictions of the Sin Eater
0: Yeah well I mean I love Helen's work and thinking about historical approaches to because you have like historical approach to film and television in terms of archive and stuff like that but hers is more of a historian's approach to, to film and television thinking about contemporary texts and how they engage with historical ideas and customs and we'll be absolutely delighted to publish a article by Helen on sin eaters in a special issue we've got coming out hopefully this year we'll share that when it comes out and and people can read a bit more about her writing about sin eating which is just really engaging
1: yeah and I think the final thing we've been talking about extensively is just yeah the notion of being an independent researcher and we we are You and I are in different situations where you have a permanent contract. I'm a bit in between things at the moment. But I have started to put myself down as independent researcher in a lot of the things that I'm, the conferences or places I go to. And uh, in a different group we once went to, I said it's it's kind of a euphemism for being unemployed. But in the case of Helen, it's actually not a euphemism. It's just doing another thing. Like she has her full-time job and she is an academic, independently of an institution. So I always find it super fascinating, and also inspiring, and perhaps like hopeful that there are people out there who can do this successfully.
0: Yeah, and it is so important to talk about it, isn't it? Because there are so many spoken and unspoken rules, because actually, I'm on a teaching only contract. So in terms of like having a I don't have like a research contract mm. in the, my current role. I used to be on a teaching and research contract, and I chose to leave that job, which I loved. Yeah, and I've talked about it here before for um, you know, having a bit more flexibility in time with family. So I then had to apply for like a special status in order to use the university I work at's name on research publications. And then I've I've also applied for that via CDAS, the Centre for Death and Society. And I, Helen was talking about it that that she does too. And I think I've got one with uh, Winchester as well, where I completed my my doctorate. And those are really useful for people who want access to an email address and to libraries. And it's so good to have access to more than one library, because if something's not in one, <laughs> often it's in another. It can just be so helpful to have like a, if you're applying for something or you're you're wanting to do something, not to have to write independent research. But then on the other hand, it shouldn't be an issue if you do. So I'm, I'm a bit torn about, yeah, how those sorts of things function. Have you found those useful in your interstitial period between contracts at the moment? Yes and
1: no. I, I like it sometimes as a signing off of emails or just to let people know I'm not affiliated with anything. But it also, it people respond to it differently and sometimes a bit hesitantly of like, Okay, what are you and who are you? Also, because I, I show up sometimes to academic events in Finland. And so the last thing I went to, everyone had their name and their affiliation. And I had put an in independent researcher, but they had just put my name on the badge. They didn't put down independent researcher, which I thought was a bit odd. The the event I went to, I didn't really know anyone. And I think maybe having independent researcher on it would have encouraged more conversation by others, because it, it was open also to members of the public it could just look like i was a random person who had entered uh, the, the event and i think if you are using certain spaces for networking or for meeting people it's nice to still have some kind of link with like universities or academia but a lot of it is also i think how you portray yourself or identify yourself because a lot of my identity is wrapped around like being in universities and being an academic but I think we've also spoken with other guests about that even if you don't work, you still carry that or if you still do all those things, then you are still an academic person. It's just I don't have the strength of an institution backing me up. But that doesn't mean that the work I'm doing right now is any less, if that makes any sense.
0: Absolutely. Definitely does. I was about to say absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, certainly it does. And I think it's so key as well that a lot of it can just be like a bit of snobbery. But ultimately, like you said, in a sort of networking situation, it's sometimes you can be like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I know that institution," or ask a question about that can give you something to say. And we have got other guests we've already recorded we haven't released who are also very successful independent researchers. So it's interesting to kind of think about that. And I, I think working in a university in a different way, like Helen does, can be really useful in an academic role, and like not the other way around. In that, for example, I I started out in professional services roles in a university, in a couple of universities. And those gave me so many useful skills and so much knowledge that I apply in a more academic role as well. They can just complement each other really well. It would be interesting. I've yet to come across anyone in death studies, really, who's doing the independent researcher type role without either a previous career in academia behind them or a sort of professional services role and something to do with universities it must be surely a lot harder to manage having two very different kinds of jobs but hopefully people will come come forward and we'll find some people who are doing that because it'd be great to learn more about how that might work
1: yeah this has been our 11th episode so next month we are launching our 12th which does that mean we've been at it for a year
0: that means we've been releasing episodes for a year it's fine by I mean part of me is is also just like I have new people I want to interview every day and we have so many in the stored and saved ready to go pile as well and so many people lined up to interview it would be great to do two a month but I don't think we're quite there yet because time commitment wise we've got so much to fit in well thanks
1: everyone for listening to another
0: episode of the Deaf
1: Studies Podcast and thank you if you've made it all the way through our ramblings uh, for staying all the way to the end and looking forward to seeing you all next month Thank you for listening to the Deaf Studies Podcast You can find out more about our guests and their work in the show notes or on our website thedevstudypodcast.com. If you enjoyed listening to us please leave us a comment follow us on social media at thedevpodcast and of course spread the word.